Hello and welcome to the Stat Dose Podcast. My name is Joe Francis. And I'm Matt Young. And this is Stat Medical Topics. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Stat Dose Podcast. We're doing a Stat Medical Topic today. Um, and the theme is acute coronary syndromes. Isn't that right, Joe? That is right, Matt. Good. Full stop. I'm glad we're on the same, <laughs> the same page. <laughs> Um, so what, um, I suppose we should probably start with the definition. What, 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 what do we mean when we talk about acute coronary syndromes? Yeah, no, I th- I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you called it acute coronary syndrome, I guess, instead of calling it something like an MI or yeah. STEMI or something. Because actually when we talk about pathologies like these, we need to call them acute coronary syndromes to encompass everything that it can be. And it took me quite a while to work this out as a student. I was like, well, I don't really know. What's an NSTEMI and what's an NSTEAC and what's an ACS and what's a STEMI? Mm. What's my name? <laughs> and all these important things that you need to know when you're going into the medical world. How do, how do we define these? What, what, what different types of things are there? Well, what we're essentially talking about is a disease process that is because of myocardial ischemia. Mm-hmm. ACS, the acute coronary syndrome, is your umbrella. Yeah. It's your umbrella term. And then there are several little offshoots of that. So the first offshoot that we all think about is ST elevation myocardial infarction. So your STEMI. Your second offshoot to that is then your NSTEMI, so non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. And then your third offshoot from uh, from the acute coronary syndromes is unstable angina. And quite often the way in which we differentiate between these is, is relatively simple. Mm-hmm. With, with your STEMIs, often that will be when they are presenting with a acute coronary sh- syndrome, but there is a clear ST elevation and troponin. Um, rate raised troponin mm-hmm. and then differentiating between NSTEMI and, and unstable angina is a bit more difficult but yeah. quite a lot of the time it relies on troponin release yeah. from that doesn't it so patients can present with essentially, essentially what are exacerbations of their angina mm. that are coming on sort of more at rest and uh, which would be a sort of unstable angina and they could present with your classic acute coronary syndrome but there would be T-wave inversion or ST depression but this is how um, NSTEMIs can similarly uh, present and so what we do, what we tend to do, is differentiate uh, between those by saying an unstable angina is one a patient that comes with an acute coronary syndrome has a 12 lead ECG, it's reflective myocardial ischemia, but there's no troponin release. Mm. Whereas with an NSTEMI, there would be all of the previously mentioned, but with a troponin release. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. roughly, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm sure there are cardiologists out there that would disagree. <laughs> with you, but for the rough kind of encompassing of it, that's how we tend to categorise these yeah. these acute coronary syndromes. And I think I think the use of the umbrella term is, is accurate because it's, yeah. it's more of a spectrum. I think that's kind it of what is. we're alluding to. Yes, yeah, yeah. Rather yeah, than right. definitively saying, you know, this is this, although a STEMI is a STEMI. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is it is more of a spectrum. Mm. Yeah, so it could go from unstable angina to NSTEMI yeah. to STEMI yeah. in that way, but not always. Some yeah. people can just bang, have a ST yeah. elevation. Bang, STEMI. Bang, STEMI. <laughs> we should probably quickly mention as well, there's, there's some new definitions sort of floating around the ether. They're not really incorporated into practice just yet, but you might hear um, people mentioning type 1 and type 2 MIs. It does actually go to type 5. I had a quick wow. read. Which, yeah, I mean, type 3 is death by MI, so <laughs> you yeah. don't really need to worry too much about that. Um, but type 1 and type 2 are the, are the two that you might hear sort of floated around. Um, a type 1 is, is sort of the traditional 
plaque rupture MI, which we'll, mm. we'll talk about sort of more here. Um, and a type 2 MI is is secondary often to something like sepsis or some sort of physiological insult. Oh, okay, so you're getting a thrombus or something, a, a kind of embolus, sorry, yeah. um, that, from a DIC or yeah. or something like that, yeah. okay, as opposed to an actual plaque rupture itself. Yeah. yeah and, well, that's important. And, and it's, it's, more of a, it's more of a physiological demand. It's more mm. of that oxygen, that oxygen demand, yeah. Michael okay. oxygen demand suddenly goes up yeah. um, rather than it being necessarily a supply issue, which is, mm. which is more of the type ones talking briefly then about pathology that segues nicely obviously we mentioned ischemia that's sort of the key pathological issue with, with acute coronary syndromes what basically happens is that you have atherosclerosis or little plaques um, in the coronary arteries these rupture and um, for whatever reason a little clot forms now when i was taught we were ta- we used to talk about back in back in the day <laughs> we used to talk about red and white clots okay and i'm sure everyone remembers from their basic physiology that uh, <clears throat> um, when there is a rupture of, of a vessel, uh, the platelets are the initial cell that, that are present. You get that platelet plug that forms that eventually activates clotting factors and things. And you go down your, your coagulation cascade and a fibrin-rich clot is eventually formed. Now, in, when we talk about red and white clots, what we mean is a red clot being a fibrin-rich clot and a white clot being a platelet-rich clot. And these are relevant in acute coronary syndrome. It's purely because a red clot is going to cause continual ischemia and will eventually lead to infarction, eventually lead to cell death. And whereas a white clot causes more of a partial obstruction, so you still get a bit of flow through. And the, the, key, the key clinical difference there is that a red clot will typically give you a STEMI. So you get that ST elevation, which is due to the cell death and the myocytes releasing lots of things like potassium is the thing that basically causes the, the ECG abnormality, but it also releases troponin, CK, myoglobin, lots of other fancy chemicals that I don't really need to know about. And because the red clot causes the STEMI, we used to thrombolize STEMIs. Mm. Um, we don't do that anymore, which we're going to talk about in the management section. But we used to thrombolize STEMIs because it's all fibrin-rich clots that's causing the, the issue. Um, and we give dual antiplatelets for N-STEMIs and unstable angina because it's a platelet-rich white clot. And we need to be giving antiplatelet agents. So I always like that sort of, it's quite a straightforward pathological difference that just made it make sense in my head, mm. the differences between the all the different terms. So Joe, what are the key risk factors we're really interested in when we see patients that we're worried about in acute coronary syndrome in? Yeah, so I guess um, this is the sort of list of things that I look at, I suppose, when I've got a patient who could be presenting at, who who has a presentation rather, that may at any point be ACS. I want to rule out. And so I look for these risk factors. Clearly, age is going to be a risk factor as it is for for essentially everything. Getting older sucks and you will get pathology. And when, so when we say age, what we mean is um, that uh, uh, if you're um, older in life, then, then you're going to be at higher risk of atherosclerosis and therefore higher risk of um, acute myeloid infarction. In addition to age, thinking about genders, uh, the male gender is unfortunately more likely to have a myocardial infarction. And then it's really thinking about your classic uh, increases for risk. So smokers, increased risk. Those who have diabetes are at significant risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard um, estimates of over fifty percent increased yeah, risk, it's huge, um, which is, which is really significant. I think the same goes for stroke with diabetes patients. Uh, those who have hypertension and, of course, high high cholesterol, um, and 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 really, you'll be thinking, hmm, these these ring a bell, and that's because they are all of these risk factors are risk factors for atherosclerosis. They're risk factors for stroke, risk factors for PE. Um, etc. And so all of those sort of embolic, um, plaquic 
type stuff as a word. Plack it. Um, yeah, I'm going to go for it. Um, <laughs> type, say it with enough confidence and it becomes true. That's very true. Uh, our, our, our risk factors. And, and, and then, of course, when we're thinking about uh, risk factors, the big thing to um, consider is, has that person had a previous MI? Yeah. Because if they've had a previous MI, it, usually that's because they've got a significant amount of risk factors that yeah. cause them to have that MI. Not always, but, but quite a lot. Or they've got coronary artery disease alongside that's, yeah. You know, that's, yeah, that's present. Yeah. Okay, Matt, so we've gone through definition and sort of pathology, and we've talked about some risk factors. How does a, an acute coronary syndrome present? Have you ever seen one? I've, I've n- <laughs> no. Yeah. no. They're quite rare, aren't they? They're, they're very rare. I've never, I've never actually seen anybody at all compared okay. to chest pain. Yeah, I guess it's more my bag in yeah. primary care. <laughs> it's more of a primary care. I mean, I see a ton you of do people see a lot of chest <laughs> coming in with chest pain. Yeah. So the, so the cardinal feature that certainly we, that we typically quote, although we'll, we'll come on to define typical, I suppose, a bit later, but um, is, is chest pain, as we're alluding to. So classically, if you read the textbooks, it will be heavy, tight, central, or, or left-sided to the chest, um, generally not pleuritic. Um, it may radiate to the left arm or the jaw, is what we, we typically say, although it can radiate to, to either arm. Patients often describe sort of an elephant sitting on their chest. Mm. It's always quite a nice sort of description. One of our volunteer patients said the other day in the OSCEs that, and so he'd had a previous MR, Mm. And he said it was like um, having a big band, like an elastic band, but a big one across the chest. And somebody was winding it in, tightening it and tightening it. So that's quite quite interesting. It's quite good. Quite a graphic description. Pain is much less likely to present in certain groups, the diabetics, uh, the elderly patients, Afro-Caribbean patients as well. And we I sort of mentioned the, the typical nature in inverted mm. commas because actually what we what we see a lot of is termed atypical chest pain because it doesn't fit into this textbook definition. Yeah. But actually, one of the key presenting complaints or the most common presenting complaint that encompasses, I think, about ninety percent of acute coronary syndrome is actually sweating. Yeah. So always fear the sweating patient. Always fear the sweating patient. Yeah. Otherwise, what, what other features do we see, Joe? Well, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, um, I'm quite scared about ACS in a lot of ways because it presents, in my um, experience, quite atypically a lot yeah. of time, yeah. especially when you're talking about those um, those, those um, patients who've got neuropathy, diabetics, mm. or, or the elderly. Um, and I've seen a load of barn door inferior MIs with right-sided arm pain or some yeah. right-sided facial pain or something. You've done ECG and they've got massive, great inferior STEMI. Yeah. And so um, I'm always cognizant, and I think in in general practice, I'm, I'm sat there with a patient and going, you know, does it does it hurt when you take a breath in, mm. and does it hurt when you kind of press down? And those are supposed to be questions to rule out yeah. um, MI, but you can, but they you, don't. You simply no. can't. No. And I think the sensitivity and specificity on those questions is actually really low. Yeah. Um, and so we, we just have to be really careful. I think yes, I've seen them present. I've seen patients present with your classic heavy, tight, central crushing mm-hmm. chest pain. But really, quite a lot of the time I will see a bit of a colour change mm. or some diaphoresis or some shortness of breath in the elderly. And all of these things have, uh, make me think, I want an ECG on this person. Yeah. I want to do bloods. And I think actually ECGs are so quick, they're mm. so easy, they're point of care. If you can do them on a pre- presenting complaint that may be... Um, of that etiology, just get it done mm. because actually they can give you a load of information even if that patient doesn't have a STEMI. Mm, definitely, um, and I think one of the issues as well when you when you examine go on to examine the patient, 
you know, apart from the ECG, which I would include as part of the examination, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you don't typically find anything. A lot no. of these, pa- you know, the majority of, of your ACS patients, I mean, they might be a little bit sweaty or a bit tachycardic, but they're, they're generally non-specific issues. You don't, you know, you don't listen for ACS over the no. heart sounds. You, you know, it's nothing like that happens. You don't have a load of sepsis markers yeah, exactly, with febrile yeah. or hypotensive. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there might be, but classically, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah. one of the key really things you're looking for are actually the complications of an ACS. So you're yeah. looking for actually, are they in pulmonary edema? Yeah. Um, have they put themselves into a, an unusual arrhythmia? Do they, do they have a valve pathology that's resulted from a big infarct? Yeah. These are the things you're really looking for in your examination rather than any positive findings that would suggest acute coronary syndrome. It's why it's difficult to pick up. I completely agree. And I think actually some of the near misses that I've had with MIs, apart from very, very, very strangely presenting MIs are kind of oh, a bit of a fall and a shortness of breath or yeah. something, is patients who are in florid heart failure, yeah. for example, and you're treating their heart failure with their like you know 300 over 100 blood pressure, significantly desaturated bilateral crackles throughout their entire body mm. and you're managing that but actually what you need to do is check the ECG because mm. what actually sparked off that heart failure might have been a, a massive anterior mm. MI and I've seen that or, or you know or yeah. any area yeah. and so actually you're right looking at that VT patient is that VT because that patient's um, having myocardial ischemia is that heart failure because of myocardial ischemia mm. so actually you know making sure that you're thinking differentially about that those presentations so when we when we see these patients joe as we sort of alluded to it often quite difficult to pick up Mm. what differentials do we need in our head well okay well i'll tell you what instead of instead of me listing all the differentials i'm I'm gonna list the first one all right my my, one of my first i'll put my tea back down (laughs) (laughs) and then um Let's see how many we can get to together. So, uh, first differential for me would be, is there an aortic dissection? Ooh. So, coming in with chest pain, yeah. they're going to clearly have some shortness of breath, perhaps. They're going to have some chest pain. A few little differentiating factors there to, to pick out. Mm-hmm. Um, they may have have some, that, 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 that other kind of pain tra- um, down their, up their jaw, down their arm, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and some of the other signs. So, yeah, aortic dissection is certainly something I would think about. Nice. I will go for pericarditis to start. Mm. Typically, we're uh, better, sorry, relieved by leaning forward. Mm. Often younger patients, mm. often a viral prodrome, so they're yeah. a bit unwell a couple of weeks ago. What else? Oh, ECG wise, you generally get small QRS complexes because of the inflammation of the pericardium, so it blocks the complex a little bit. Um, PR depression, you can see as well. Yeah, that's uh, quite sensitive, uh, isn't it? Yeah. It's a very sensitive sign. And obviously the SD saddling, which I think most people are sort of aware of, um, without any reciprocal changes. Mm. Back to you, Joe. Okay, so I'm going to go for pulmonary embolism. Ooh. So uh, <laughs> another one of your emboli type. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's essentially the MI of the lung, isn't it? MI of the lung? <laughs> Love it. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, so, um, typically, looking at your risk factors. So, um, you know, you go down through your Wells criteria in a way, yep. don't you? So, you know, any previous DVTs, long haul travel, and then all of your um, atherosclerotic stuff. You know, um, ongoing cancer, recent mm. surgeries, immobilization, etc. Um, sudden onset of chest pain, shortness yes. of breath, as opposed to a bit of a 
and uh, gradual onset quite often can be a bit pluritic PE yeah. so it can worsen when you um, take a deep breath in it can feel like it's actually worse when you press down on it and it's in a more abnormal atypical mm. area mm. you know it could be a bit in the back it could be on the right side etc and mm. you usually get a desaturation whereas not, you don't always get desaturation with uh, yeah. MI as any yeah. if you're in heart failure really isn't Pretty it much. so so yeah PE would be something to rule out for me okay. what about you uh, reflux yeah. Again, oh, yeah, sort reflux. of diagnosis of exclusion, really. Mm. Yeah, typically describes a burning pain reading up into the esophagus. Although that that can be the same presenting mm. pain as as an MI pain. Um, metallic taste is quite a good yeah. a good Acidy sign. Taste, yeah, yeah, that sort of that taste in the mouth. But yeah, generally quite difficult to differentiate. To be honest, they might have some abdominal tenderness, um, epigastrically. But yeah, Joe, Betty. Okay, so uh, getting a bit thin now. Pneumonia probably for me. So um, again, differentiating with that with or maybe maybe infective slash viral prodrome of some sort, but cough productive of X number of um, coloured sputums, which we've covered mm-hmm. on another podcast. Boom. Um, <laughs> fever. You know, again, looking at your sepsis markers: fever, um, tachycardia, maybe some hypotension, unilateral crackles yeah. um, on on lung auscultation, um, and obviously an ECG that doesn't show a stomach, which is <laughs> helpful. Um, uh, so yeah, pneumonia. I think uh, pneumothorax for me. I think yeah. while we're in the lungs, again, sort of acute onset chest pain. Generally, it's either going to be traumatic related or, or sort of atraumatic. So you'd be thinking about your tall, thin, marfanoid types, or possibly your CFAD patients who have got got your bulla there. Um, asthmatics as well. Anything that's going to raise your intrathoracic pressure. Mm. Yeah, generally, again, more of a respiratory type presenting complaints the shortness of breath mm. um, real inability to take a deep breath yeah, um, and a bit of yeah air hunger is good good term uh, and yeah a bit of hypoxia any more Joe? I guess lastly thinking about it particularly from primary care musculoskeletal yeah. chest pain or muscular tenderness yeah. muscular lig- ligamentous tenderness um, <laughs> keep saying muscular <laughs> <laughs> uh, so MSK chest pain really really common it does present with painful chest pain on palpation it does present with increased pain on inspiration mm. quite often you know and or a preceding traumatic cause but it is a diagnosis of exclusion yeah quite difficult to do that in you know out of hours or gp mm. practice but again what you have to do is look at those risk factors now what you're not going to do is find a 76 year old diabetic smoker with hypertension and a pre- previous mi and who's come with us uh, an onset of chest pain, even if it's palpably so, uh, painful and increases on inspiration, you're probably going to send them in for ECG and bloods, yeah, aren't you? I, w- I would expect to see that patient yeah, exactly. in the department. Yeah. And and so actually what you're doing is you're seeing that sort of 35-year-old who's yeah. who's had maybe a bit of a traumatic cause, has got yeah. sudden onset of sharp chest pain on the right-hand side that's mm. painful to palpate mm. and uh, etc. That Those are the guys that you're going to be doing... Um, thinking about this as a diagnosis of exclusion. So you just have to be really careful and just use your brain a little bit and weigh up the history and the physical examination. So you mentioned getting an ECG on your patients. Um, what sort of what other key cardinal features that we're looking for that would suggest ischemia? So there are quite a few, really. The, the, the clearest thing that I look for, and I almost, um, you know, I, I'm almost, apart from looking at rate, I must go and look at that straight away. Mm-hmm. Almost on my, I've been sort of, my eye is trained to the ST segments straight away often. <laughs> um, so it's ST elevation. Yeah. So you, you're looking for elevation from the J point. What we tend to say is there are some leads, V1, V2, where you can have 
um, some ST elevation in certain patients, and of course you can have you know benign early repolarization and all mm-hmm. of these sort of things going on. But what we tend to say is at least a mil a millimeter of elevation or more in two congruent leads, don't we? So yep. two leads of the same area. So we're not looking at kind of one mil and a lateral lead. Mm. Well, actually, I'll say for safety, well, yeah. 0.5 of a mil and a lateral lead. And then in an inferior lead, there's another 0.5 or something like that. Of ST elevation, it's got to be a millimetre or more um, in two separate leads, really. Often with reciprocal changes, I think, is the key Yeah, as well. and I think, yeah. Although although the issue is, I suppose, on a, on a standard ECG, if it's just an anterior, yeah. you might not get that reciprocal yeah. change in the inferior leads yeah. because obviously you'd be seeing that in posterior. But yes, traditionally, you do want to look for, for that reciprocal change, and that is when ST elevation becomes diagnostic, isn't mm-hmm. it? Look for reciprocal change every single time that you see ST elevation yeah. is what, what we try and tell our students. It's just a quick point I'd like to make, actually, because an F1 asked me this yesterday. Okay. Was, how do you differentiate between ST elevation and high takeoff? Yeah, it's difficult. It, basically, my response is yeah. very difficult. Yeah. Um, and it, it comes down to that, to essentially, is there any reciprocal change? Yeah. Uh, and the patient, you know, are yeah. they, if they've got chest pain yeah. and they're, you know, 17, sort of that patient you mentioned earlier, the smoker, the diabetic, etc then you're going to be a little bit more cautious. Mm. And high takeoff generally occurs in a younger, fitter population. It's essentially early, it was just aggressive repolarization of the ventricles, giving mm. a, an ST elevation. It generally looks smoother, it looks more like a bit of a saddle, or just only a smoother concave shape. Saddle's the wrong word. <laughs> smoother point. But certainly smoother without any reciprocal change would suggest some high takeoff. And you can sometimes get a little notch at the J point yeah, you can, yeah. as well, like a, a little notch that, um, that's quite diagnostic of, of BER. Yeah. Although they're, they're, they're thinking now that it's not so benign. No, really? Benign early repolarization because there's not lots of, more of uh, increased risk of arrhythmias oh. later life. So just just early just early repolarization then. <laughs> so we digress, but yeah, ST elevation, clear ECG finding, equally ST depression, something that we need to be thinking yep. about um, and, um, and and looking for. And then if we see ST depression, is that ST depression mm. just ST depression, or is it reciprocal change from a lead where there is ST elevation? Good point. Yeah. So whenever I see ST ele- elevation, I look for depression. Whenever I look for depression or see it, I look for elevation. Um, T-wave inversion is probably what I see most often, yeah, actually. Sure. There's lo- loads and loads of T-wave inversion. And T-wave inversion be- can become fixed a lot of the time, mm-hmm. can't it, in, in, in a number of different, for a number of different reasons. Pathological Q-waves. Now, these can, again, be fixed from a previous MI um, but they represent quite a significant infarction usually when you're mm. seeing them. So what we used to call a sort of full thickness MI mm. um, or a transmural MI. Importantly, again, a sign to look for, left bundle branch block. If it's yeah. of new onset with yeah. chest pain, it's an MI until proven otherwise. There are ways that you can have a look at left bundles to see if whether it's old or new. But again, I wouldn't be doing that in a patient that is really, really at risk of an no. MI. Just a little note here. There are alternate leads that you can place on the patient to get views of a couple of different areas so we'll often do a v7 8 and v9 mm. so um, always always fun to ask for a 15 lead ecg yeah. and just see what the nursing staff yeah. do because you get some funny looks a lot of the time oh do you get your pe- uh, people to do your ecgs I, I, for you i, I do yes <laughs> 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 because i'm like uh, why don't you do a 15 lead ECG, Joe? Oh, I've got to do it myself. <laughs> so, yeah, you can do a, a 15 lead ECG, as you call it, although I tend to actually take the leads off 
of five, uh, four, five, six. They have to yeah. put them. Yeah, yeah. six. No, yeah, there aren't fifteen so leads. There aren't fifteen. Leads. I like to ask them because yeah. because you just I'm like messing around. I'm a dick. <laughs> so, and that will be ended now. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, uh, V seven, V eight, and V nine uh, essentially goes um, on the uh, posterior aspect of the um, of the patient and essentially tracks along the scapula. And what that allows you to look at is the posterior area of the, the left ventricle. That's good for posterior MIs. It's also good to look for a, a reciprocal change in an anterior MI. Um, the second thing to think about if you have an inferior STEMI is doing a V4R. So you essentially look at your V4 position, place it over onto the right-hand side, the corresponding right-hand side of the patient, um, and then when you print the ECG out, V4, you just put a little um, R on it saying V4R. Uh, and what that shows you actually is the right ventricle. So what you want to know in an inferior myocardial infarction is whether there's any right ventricular involvement, which carries a quite a significant increase in morbidity mm. mortality. You have to start thinking about things like um, um, boluses of fluid mm. and, and contraindicating your nitrates and things like that. Um, because of um, what what is essentially going to be an impending cardiogenic shock, mm. essentially, yeah, it's all preload issues. Yeah, so um, so all things to think about, um, and yeah, so those are the main ECG findings. Um, so moving on, other investigations. Then obviously, blood tests are something that we're gonna gonna be want to be doing. Mm. Um, let's just wheel a few off. So. F full blood count, always good to look for anemia. So anemia can cause, certainly symptomatic anemia uh, mm. can cause angina or even a type 2 um, myocardial infarction. Okay. Yeah. Use an ease just to make sure that your renal function is okay. Can I get potassiums and stuff like exactly, that? Because yeah. actually they can cause uh, weird looking UCGs. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. Um, liver function because, well, why the hell not? It's only a quid. Um, <laughs> CRP, if you think there's an infective cause going on. Um, I often like to get a coag hold, I don't necessarily run it. Um, but at, at some point, if you see that patient, maybe if the trops are negative and you sort of think, I wonder if it was a PE, you might want to add on a D dimer. Um, it's much easier just to be the patient once and get the lab to hold the coag for a couple of hours before deciding whether to run a D-dimer or not so that's something I like to do but troponin is, is sort of the key and I think everyone everyone sort of appreciates that we need troponins to when we're assessing patients um, with uh, potential acute coronary syndromes I mean Matt I'm, what I'm looking forward to is you actually educating me on troponins in this podcast because <laughs> you know lab, lab in a bag is coming yeah. to the to the uh, out of hospital environment I'm, I'm not going to be doing troponins but it's good to have an increased knowledge of them and so yeah. I know that there's been quite a lot of change over the last few years isn't there yeah and so why don't you run me through that from a, a in a kind of chronological order yeah. from let's say the 1960s okay um, I will st- I will try um, no so from even, well when I started med school we talked about CKs. Um, we didn't really mention troponins. Okay, really? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, how, that's how old I am. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, so you that old, though. I know. Well, yeah. So CKs also rise in, in acute coronary syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that's released as the as the cells die. Mm-hmm. Troponin has largely replaced that. And there's lots of different troponins that you can test for. Um, I, I think the, it's the troponin T is the, the new highly sensitive one. Mm-hmm. So again, when, when I was starting, we used to test troponin eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were a little bit... More, they were more, they were better than the CKs, but just not as good as the, the highly, highly sensitive troponin T. And the issue that we largely have in practice is that they're so sensitive 
that they're sensitive to hemolysis, mm. lots of other little things as well. Any sort of myocardial damage, and um, that they're often raised. Yeah, I think I, I think I have had that experience quite a lot actually in practice, where we because we um, in the out of hours we'll get all the abnormal path yeah. stuff come back, yeah. and so you'll see a patient in a community hospital who's had a troponin for whatever reason, yeah. um, you know, they got raging heart failure, yeah. and their troponin's raised, and then I'm being called because yeah. I have to go out and visit this patient yeah. to see whether they're having an MI or yeah. because they've got a TET form and etc. And you're sort of like, well, they've got chronic kidney disease mm. and they've probably got a bit of a pneumonia mm. and also they've got ongoing heart failure. Their troponins are going to be raised. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because yeah. it's a, it's a, it's quite sensitive, but it's not specific. It's not quite, it's not very no, specific. Not overly specific, no. Yeah. And it's one of those things, like, I mean, one troponin may be helpful, mm-hmm. um, but largely most of the patients that, you, that you're seeing and assessing will have two troponins done. Okay. And when's um, that then? So typically the first one's about three hours after the onset of pain. Okay. And then there's another one three hours after that. Okay. Um, so that's a bit annoying, isn't it? Because it's that goes irritating. over. It's the, yes, the four-hour window four suddenly, hour window. Um, yeah, suddenly. So do these patients end up getting admitted to MAU for their second drop then? It, 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 yeah, or, it, or a medical unit? Yeah, it depends on what risk, how risky they are. Mm. So if they're, if they're sort of relatively low risk, but have got a sort of a borderline raised troponin, they might go to CDU okay, or yeah. some sort of assessment area in, yeah. in the emergency department. But a lot of them, if they yeah, if they've got a few risk factors, then they'll they'll go under the under team medicine for a second troponin just because they are high risk. Yeah. But really, I think the the trend is key, as it is in most blood tests, to be honest. Mm. So if your troponins are static, it implies that's that patient's normal. Mm. So that might be you know as you mentioned the heart failure patient. Yeah. That 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 troponin of fifty may yeah. well be their normal troponin. Last month they also had a troponin of 49. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But really the, the the trend is key and and you, what you're looking for is a rise in troponins which would suggest that there was an acute coronary event several hours ago. Mm. What you do actually see a lot of the time as well if if it's a prolonged or a, sort of delayed presentation you mentioned that patient with, with pulmonary edema that you're mm. managing the crash pulmonary edema. Actually if you did two troponins on that person you might see that the troponin is actually falling right. that's because they had an event weeks ago yeah. and actually their troponin is being cleared. Okay. Um, so actually anything that isn't you know either a rise or a fall suggests an MI at some point mm. um, which I think is quite important to, to bear in mind as well so don't be falsely reassured by a falling troponin because actually that implies they've had an event that they didn't realise Okay Matt just before we move on from inv- investigations we, we have talked about some some ways in which uh, troponins can be raised or some pathologies that can cause raised troponins so why don't you just list those off for us um, <laughs> All of them Yeah. Well you know the main ones. <laughs> so essentially, as I sort of alluded to, any sort of myocardial issue. Mm-hmm. So cardiomyopathy is quite quite a key one. Yeah, you okay. you'll generally see drops in the thousand if you've got wow. a dilated cardiomyopathy, just because all of that tissue is being stretched and releasing a lot of a lot of troponin. Um, inflammation again. So pericarditis, which we mentioned earlier, can raise your troponin. Um, myocarditis can too, mm. um, which we didn't mention earlier. But um, any sort of inflammation around the, the myocardium can can cause a troponin rise. And dissections again that you mentioned, yeah. an aortic dissection can certainly yeah. raise your troponin. But then you get the other things as well. So certainly kidney patients, so you CKD, your dialysis patients, troponin's cleared by the kidneys. Yeah. So, so if you've got a exactly, if you've got a renal impairment, your trop's going to be raised and that's probably going to be normal for you. But even things like shock, if you're getting poor poor perfusion to the to the myocardium at some point, then mm. you're going to be getting a slight troponin rise as well. So any cause of, of shock will also trop um, also Raise your troponin. Any any causes of shock or tropius shock? Yeah, I know. There's too many trops and shocks and things going on. What about scoring systems? Because, you know, we, we, there's always going to be a scoring system out there, isn't yeah. there, for, for a lot of these things. Are they useful? What are they? Do you use them in practice? 
The one I use in practice, I use this is a thing called a heart score. Yeah, okay, I've heard of that come out. Yeah, it's recent, isn't it? It's quite recent, yeah, yeah it's yeah. quite new. Um, it's in the NICE guidelines, which is why it's been incorporated in our, mm. in our practice. I'm not a massive fan of the heart score. Oh. It's a little bit risk-averse, in my opinion. I, end right. up, I, I find I end up admitting a lot of patients under medicine who I don't really think have had an MI or a significant cardiac event, but they are elderly, you know, they've had a previous MI or something like that. I think I just, the computer I, says yes. Basically, it's a, the, a, yeah. the computer says yes. Yeah. And that's the, always the problem with scoring systems anyway. Um, and it's one of those, your sort of your consultants and things, and your senior doctors may well override these scoring systems, mm. and that's actually appropriate. Mm. There's lots of good evidence that actually cl- senior clinicians do better than scoring systems. Mm. All these things are great, but senior clinicians are better. And that's good, isn't it? Because actually, um, AI is coming. <laughs> and it's it coming is. for all our jobs. And so basically, we don't want to get taken over by something that can go, beep, boop, beep, boop, boop, you no. don't have a heart attack. No. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, you do have a heart attack. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in exactly that way exactly and if you do yeah exactly. I mean there's no point doctors existing if you just use algorithms you know, if you can just put all, input all the data into an algorithm and output something then why do we exist at all um, I think I read that on your CV <laughs> <laughs> I think you just said Matt Young not just another clinical not, decision you exactly <laughs> Uh, the other score I should mention is Grace. Um, Grace is the it's a global registry of acute coronary, coronary events. Basically, a score the cardiologists will use to help re-stratify patients who require angiography, mm-hmm. and that's generally used in end stemmies and unstable angina rather than your stemmies. But it's quite it's quite a useful scoring system that, the, that you might see used on on your cardiology placements. Um, and Timmy is the other one that's thrown around. That's the thrombolysis and MI score. Mm-hmm. It's a slightly less thorough version of grace um, but is often used in practice quite a lot as well okay so we've talked about uh, presentations and, uh, and and investigations i guess now it's uh, it's about management and when we're managing somebody who we, we we highly suspect or we have shown is having an acute coronary syndrome the objectives really is to reduce myocardial demand and increase coronary blood flow you don't need to hear this anymore, but you're going to. <laughs> you need to do an A, B, C, D, E approach on these patients. What are you going to find? Well, you might find quite a lot of stuff, but um, really, you're correcting as you find it. You might find um, a, a, some, I mean, you, you could have airway issues, but that's pretty pretty far down the line, yeah, isn't it? Is. Breathing, uh, there may be an increased respiratory rate. It would be good to um, listen to the chest, check if there's any concurrent heart failure. In terms of reduced saturations, really, we want to just be giving oxygen enough to get the saturations um, in and around 94 to 98%. These patients, although critically unwell, do not need high flow oxygen the the entire time. And there's some thought processes around that. If you look at the AVOID trial, Mm -hmm. uh, which we'll include in the show notes, there is an increase in oxygen-free radicals, essentially, which can cause... Um, further myocardial damage to so actually worsen their patient outcome if you give high flow. So, so nasal specs usually often use if there's a bit of hypoxia yep. um, and, and just titrating to effect. Um, Circulation-wise is going to be where you're going to have your main input. So banging on an ECG, making sure that the blood pressure is within um, normal ranges, being careful with ad- administration of nitrates and opiates, but clearly really, really important, giving fluids as and when you need and drawing off bloods. Usually these patients will need a singular large bore or two wide bore cannulas if they're critically unwell. Mm-hmm. Um, and so see is where you're going to be doing most of your, your input. Now, um, 
we do have a treatment, a, a sort of acronym, don't we, that, yeah. we, that we band about. So Matt, do you want to kind of talk about that a bit more? Yeah, so we talk about Mona quite yeah. a lot. Um, morphine, oxygen, nitrates and aspirin. Yeah. Um, morphine is quite useful for, for pain and also to reduce anxiety and things. Yeah. Um, oxygen, which, which we mentioned, you don't want to over-oxygenate these patients. Mm-hmm. Nitrates, always pretty good at... Uh, Reducing your, your preload essentially, so it works more on the reducing myocardial oxygen demand aspect of your, yeah. of your protocols, rather than lots of people think it sort of dilates your, your coronary vessels. It does a little bit, but not as much as you you think. Um, it's more of a venous dilator, so it's more about reducing preload. Just be cautious if you've got a patient with a with a right um, ventricle infarct, because as we mentioned earlier, that's that's more of a preload issue. Um, if you're not, you know, you don't, you don't, if you're filling there properly because of the infarct, mm. you don't want to then worsen that. That patient's preload that will, that will lead to a worse outcome. Yeah. So quite commonly, I, I have to try and quickly grab a twelve lead before yeah. giving these nitrates. Yeah, so ideally, if I can, yeah. I can get you know bang 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 bang, print it out. Right, it's not an inferior with right yeah. ventricular. Right, we can you know. So I, I will often do that, although I know that's not specific guidelines. No, but that, that's, that's safe, and that's yeah. that's probably what we should be doing. Mm. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and the A aspirin, um, so really want to give a loading dose, 300 milligrams. Um, very good antiplatelet is aspirin. You know, cheap, easy to get. Paramedics have it. Most GP surgeries have it. We obviously have it in hospital. Patients um, have it. Patients well. have it a lot you of can times just, as well. You can just yeah. give, give them a quadruple dose of, yeah. their, of their 75. Yeah. Um, often it's something that 111 will say. Yeah. Take take four of your aspirins yes. before the paramedics get there. And that's that's certainly going to save lives. And that's our nice little acronym. So if you can get that in your head and remember it, great. Once you're in hospital, once we're going down that ACS route, you're going to be wanting to add in a second antiplatelet. Mm. Now, locally in Cornwall, ticagrelor is, is key. Generally, though, in the rest of the UK, it's clopidogrel. Yeah, clopidogrel. Um, yeah. And evidence-wise... Basically the same, to mm. be perfectly honest. Um, there's, there's slightly increased bleeding risk with ticagrelor and slightly better six-month, or I think it might be 12-month outcomes with ticagrelor. Okay. But they're largely equivalent, and certainly nationally and internationally, to be fair, a lot of the Americans are still on clopidogrel. It, it, it probably doesn't matter. But certainly a second antiplatelet is what you want. Prasugrel is often or is another one that will be banded about. It just depends where you're working, what your local guidelines say. Other medications to consider, so Fondaparinex, which is a, a heparin essentially, um, it helps prevent that fibrin clot from forming. It's used when patients aren't going to go for a for primary PCI. Mm. You don't want to give it if they are going to go for a primary PCI because it will increase the bleeding risk when they put the art line in. Beta blockers. Yeah. Now, acutely, I don't tend to start beta blockers okay. because there's because uh, they're negatively inotropic, and one of the the key sort of complications from MIs is the is pulmonary edema. So we don't want to reduce inotropic ability of the heart unless we're pretty certain there's no heart failure. And that's interesting because there were going to roll. There was thoughts about rolling out beta blockers for pre-hospital use. I think it's done in um, certain European countries, but perhaps that's what's actually stopping us from doing that. Yeah, so there are the, these complications. It's one of those things, you know. It, it, things you get worried about would be you know, primary edema hypertension um, and certainly you know, bradycardia yeah, or, or arrhythmias and actually I'm not sure the benefits of reducing the contractility of the heart reducing that myocardial oxygen demand outweigh the risks of, of those things um, other meds while we're on there just to mention um, ACE inhibitors as well um, more useful for, for your ongoing management so that's something that might be started on the ward and um, it helps to reduce any cardiac remodeling that occurs post MI and also helps control hypertension and things um, and one thing we do need to mention as well is the, the glycoprotein 2B, 3A receptor inhibitors. Mm. And these are reasonably new drugs coming out in the past 
eight to ten years or so. Um, generally started by cardiologists, so you don't need to know too much about them. Um, they're generally used in your high-risk NSTEMI patients and in the patients in the cath lab who have STEMIs. Um, so it's not something I typically start. But otherwise, in terms of other interventions, Joe, we talked about the meds. What interventions are we are we leaning towards? Yeah, so I mean, the gold standard uh, treatment for STEMI is uh, PPCI. So it's primary percutaneous um, coronary intervention. And really, uh, this is stent inserted uh, either via femoral or via radial up into the coronary artery. It's pretty amazing mm. surgery if you actually watch it. I've, I've been lucky enough to take patients in pre-hospitally and get to watch it, which is always the best. Um, and, and essentially it's removal, phys- physical removal of the clot. Nice recommend PPCI if the presentation's within uh, 12 hours. Um, and, and, and when I remember when this changed um, and in pre-hospital guidelines and it was essentially what we were aiming for was a door, what they call door to balloon time yeah. of under 90 minutes. Yeah. And so basically the only time that patients are pre, uh, pre-hospitally thrombolized now is in those re- remote parts where you can't get a door to balloon time. Yeah of 90 minutes and so really that encompasses pretty much everyone because it's such a gold standard it's a relatively safe surgery um, and the PPCR labs are are absolutely specialist in it Hmm. and so we actually now just transfer straight to straight to the PPCI labs and um, and and it's it's really really effective I've seen patients come in in cardiac arrest Hmm. on a Lucas and and I've taken patients in in cardiac arrest on a Lucas Hmm. and they've had PPCI and they've got really good neurological Mm. outcome so it 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 really is um fantastic thrombolysis does still happen as i say in remote areas so if we're thinking um uh, you know scotland's remote parts of wales island silly islands isle of man shetland islands other islands (laughs) all the islands (laughs) ireland (laughs) so so yeah um uh, rural places basically matt what 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 else do we go for if if we haven't uh, if we've undergone primary ppci or 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 if we're not going to go down that pathway so we're going to be employing our sort of our grace score again so if you've got a patient n stemmies or your unstable anginas Mm -hmm. you know you non you non stemmy patients um you're going to be teeing up the benefits and risks of doing angiography um You'll often be consented for angiography plus minus PCI, so plus minus a stent. Yeah, whilst um, they're doing it. Whilst they're doing it, yeah. So yeah, it's di- yeah. diagnostic and can be interventional as well, which yeah. is quite quite good. Yeah. Sometimes, though, if you've got sort of double or triple vessel disease, um, which isn't amenable to stenting, then uh, coronary artery bypass grafting, yeah. so cardiac cabbage. surgery, cabbage, yeah. um, is going to be your option. Um, and cardiologists will often um, sort of... Stop an angio, uh, stop an angiogram, um, and refer the patient to for consideration for, for cabbage. Mm. Other management things? Any any other little snippets we need to put in there? Oh Jim? yeah, well I mean, in thinking in, in certainly in primary care perspectives, when we see a patient who's who's had an an, an MI, we will often then talk about your kind of secondary mm. prevention. So you'll see these patients um, usually discharged on a load of medications, and what we'll actually talk about with them is lifestyle. Yeah. So. Clearly, smoking cessation at any point in your life yes. <laughs> is, is really good. Good management of hypertension, good management of diabetes, and cardiac reha- rehabilitation is often something that mm. we'll do, but thinking about exercise, yeah. you know, your, your diet, um, trying not to have any more MIs, you know, encouraging your family not to have any MIs, <laughs> all of this. Positive mental <laughs> thing. Yeah. I will not have another yeah. MI. Positive psychology. Who yeah. knows? We could do a study on that. Maybe um, <laughs> But yeah, so those are the different kind of dietary lifestyle advice is what we call it uh, okay. for, for ongoing management.
Okay, so we've had a quick run through of that, Matt. Um, in, in ACS, it's been a bit of a whistle stop. It's such yeah. a big topic. It's a huge actually, topic, yeah. and we could talk about it for ages because I think we're both quite passionate about yeah. you know, cardiac presentations, aren't we? So um, that and pretty much that and sore throat. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you run through what we've gone through? All of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think well, you know, key a key sort of take home message is remember that ACS encompasses several conditions: mm-hmm. so unstable angina non-ST elevation MI, uh, ST elevation MI. Really, the key issue is is the mismatch between myocardial oxygen uh, demand and myocardial oxygen supply or coronary blood flow. Um, and your investigations and management are looking to see if you can marry those two up, essentially. Mm-hmm. ECG is key, so make sure you get your ECG early. Um, remember that typical chest pain, in inverted commas, often isn't a cardinal presenting feature mm-hmm. in acute coronary syndrome. Yeah. So have have a broad a broad net if you're seeing patients sweating, vomiting, short of breath, especially in the diabetics uh, and, and the elderly, um, and just be aware of some of the key complications that we've 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 touched on: pulmonary edema, right ventricular failure, arrhythmias, and remember Mona. Awesome, and I think again we haven't teed up a witty well, sign-off. We have, but it's a bit rude. Yeah, no, well, we're not doing that one. So I guess um, thanks for listening, guys. And if you're sweating. Think listening to this podcast, and you need to get yourself an ECG. <laughs>